Would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food, satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I once knew someone who told me that the sidewalks of Chicago downtown were her labyrinth. For years, she walked them every day in meditation, looking for a surplus of meaning. You see, she knew what it meant to have reached her wit's end, to have reached that point beyond which she didn't know what more she could do. Years earlier, her young adult son had been in a terrible accident that left nearly every bone in his body broken and all of his skin burned. He would undergo dozens and dozens of surgeries, taking a toll on him, as you can imagine, in every way, body, mind, spirit. I do not know if he survived. And while she told me so much, she didn't tell me this. It felt to me as though she wanted to tell me more than the chronology of what had happened to him. More than all the surgeries he underwent, more than all that he suffered, that she suffered, more than all that they had lost and grieved. It felt like for years she had been sorting through, maybe swimming in, a surplus of emotions, memories, mystery, and meaning. I got the sense that she had been walking and walking as the sun rises and the day begins and as the shadows lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed. What should we do when we have reached our wit's end? When what we once thought was worth our lives has left us washed up emotionally, psychologically, financially, physically, and spiritually? This is what I imagine the disciples of Jesus were facing in the days following Jesus' death. <clears throat> Grieving and disconsolate, they were also bewildered by the reports of those who said not only that the tomb was empty, but also that angels had told them that Jesus was risen. In the story we read this morning, two of Jesus' followers are walking and talking, although Luke simply says that the two of them were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, we can imagine them rehearsing the trouble that they had experienced, wondering what to make of it all. We can imagine the conversation as though death had sealed their fate. Such conversations, we know, can go on and on. Then a stranger joins them, and he asks them, What are you talking about? The question stops them in their tracks. Luke says, They stood still. 
How are they supposed to tell this story to a stranger, to someone who hasn't been caught up in it, who hasn't been devastated by it? How are they supposed to reflect on the meaning of the things that have taken place? That is where we too, I think, are left standing. It is what Christ asks us to reflect upon. It's not enough to tell the story as a sequence of events, although that too is important. It is important to say what happened, just as we do when we recite some of the creeds of the church, that Christ was born, suffered, was crucified, dead and buried, and that he rose again from the dead and then ascended into heaven. The sequence of events alone, however, is incomplete. There is more. There is a surplus of meaning that may feel familiar or strange, that may evoke memories, or that we may not recognize immediately, that we may want to leave behind or somehow salvage and carry forward. Whatever it is, and whenever it comes upon us, perhaps we know it because, in the disciples' words, it is what makes our hearts burn within us. In Jenny O'Dell's new book, entitled Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, she asks us to imagine what the point of time is. She notices varieties of time the forward momentum of time, or the stretchy quality of time, when we're waiting or full of desire for something in the future, or the way the present may suddenly feel marbled with childhood memories, or the slow progression of a pregnancy, or the time it takes to heal from injuries, physical and emotional. She notices that we live inside shortening and lengthening of days, inside the seasons and the weather, where certain flowers and scents come back. Sometimes, she writes, time is not money, but these things instead. There are, according to the ancient Greeks, two conceptions of time. One is chronos, and the other is Kairos. Kronos, which is linear, is chronological time. It is the steady, plodding march of events into the future. The other conception of time is Kairos. We get the word crisis from Kairos. Kairos is the critical, opportune moment to seize. About these two orientations toward time, Jenny O'Dell writes, on the surface, it might seem that stable Kronos is the realm of comfort and unstable Kairos is the place for anxiety. But what comfort can Kronos give when it bears down on me, on others, relentlessly? The world worsens as assuredly as my hair is graying, and the future is something to get over with. In contrast, what I find in Kairos, she writes, is a lifeline, a sliver of the audacity to imagine something different. 
Kairos, the idea that at the heart of every moment is an opportunity, gives reason for hope and desire. Yes, there is uncertainty, but there is also in that moment of most limited circumstance, potential for boundless newness. Contrasting Kronos and Kairos, Jenny O'Dell writes, while one temporal sense can make you feel dead before your time, a different one can make you feel undeniably alive. Raised from the dead, Jesus returned to his disciples so that they too would claim for themselves this feeling of being undeniably alive. In Eastertide, the 50 days between the time when Jesus is raised to life and the Spirit descends upon the church, the risen Christ asks his disciples and asks us to reflect on the meaning of the things that have taken place. Whether we think in terms of Kronos or Kairos makes all the difference. It makes all the difference for those who are left behind grieving, feeling at their wits end, washed up emotionally, physically, and spiritually, wondering what was the point of it all. Jesus asked the two followers, what are you talking about? Giving them a chance to respond, Jesus heard them recount all that had happened in chronological terms. Well, first, this happened. Next, that happened. And then three days later, this happened. We had hoped that he had been the one to redeem Israel, but now that cannot be because he died. Exasperated by the absence of any understanding of the significance of what had just taken place, of what has been accomplished for them, for the world, Jesus says, Oh, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Beginning then with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things about himself in all the scriptures. With Jesus interpreting all the scriptures for them, surely they would encounter the pattern of life emerging from death, an ordered creation emerging out of chaos, Freedom emerging out of slavery, a new people emerging from exile, and Jesus' resurrection from crucifixion and death. Despite the most constraining circumstances, circumstances that could make you feel dead before your time, the scriptures tell story after story of the boundless potential for something new. See, God says, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Can you imagine the urgency with which God wants us to grasp the new thing that God is doing in the midst of the constraints of our circumstances? How we reflect on and make sense of what has happened in history and in our lives matters. Earlier this month, the New York Times published an essay entitled, 
what Holocaust storytellers like me know about secondhand smoke. Its author, Daphne Calate, is a descendant of Holocaust survivors. Her grandmother, great aunt, and great uncle were adult survivors. Her father was four years old when the Holocaust ended. As the witnesses to the Holocaust in her family began to die, Daphne Colate felt more urgency and responsibility to incorporate their voices into her work as a storyteller. Though the memories of the Holocaust were not her own, she, like many other descendants of Holocaust survivors, grew up with the secondhand smoke of it, which, as we all know, is just as toxic. Daphne Calate wrestles with how to tell the story. If it's told in the genre of fiction, people may think it isn't true. Yet if it's told in the genre of memoir, given the fallibility of memory, people may think it is untrustworthy. Even when storytellers want the documents of the Holocaust to be sufficient, the need to incorporate the surplus dimensions, the kairos, and not just the chronos of what happened, invades their storytelling. Surely, the responsibility to tell the story of the Holocaust is great. I imagine this is also how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John felt about the story of Jesus. Before the passage of too much time and the passing away of all those eyewitnesses, they wrote the stories of what Jesus said and did. I imagine this is how Jesus also felt. To make sure that the disciples would not miss the surplus of meaning in his death and resurrection, Jesus returned to them and reinterpreted the scriptures for them. Because God is always beginning something new. There are no circumstances in which we should feel dead before our time. No matter the condition of our lives, Jesus's living presence gives us hope so that we may feel undeniably alive, so that we too may feel our hearts burning within us. Amen.